0: together on this lord's day your father we want to thank you for what theologians call the trisagion holy 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 of isaiah chapter 6 as it begins we want to thank you that angels seem to know how to worship you and we need to do it much better because as john chapter 4 says you are the kind of god who seeks people that would worship him in spirit and in truth so with sincere and clean hearts as well as through biblical injunction, we do wish to worship you because that is what you are worthy of, because worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We do want to thank you, therefore, for the words of your beloved Son as found in the four gospel accounts and a few other verses in the book of Acts and the book of the Revelation. But for now, set before us is the Upper Room Discourse, and as we have this as an exit series for my ministry, I would ask that you would teach these beloved people the things that you deemed important through the teachings of your Son on the last day that he was alive before the cross. So we rejoice to know that you are the God who does all things well. You also work everything according to the counsel of your own will. And for this, we give you thanks because you are the sovereign and omnipotent and omnipresent God, in whose name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, our family took our family vacation and we went out west We stopped at Las Vegas, and of course I enjoyed the architecture of all the casinos and especially the lobbies. We stopped in uh, the Grand Canyon, and Joyce saw the beauty of God's architecture, also known as the Grand Canyon, the Southern Rim, which is a little bit more impressive than the Northern Rim. Maybe that was one of the fountains of the deep of the book of Genesis. I don't know. I'm just uh, spitballing here. But we also stopped at the boulder, also called the Hoover Dam, and had a very, very enjoyable day at this wonder of man's creativity. The mechanical engineers had to work overtime to design that famous Hoover Dam. It provides hydroelectric energy, of course, to California and Nevada, as well as creating Lake Mead, which, of course, the water level is down significantly, but at one time it was an unbelievably large, large lake. Dams are pretty impressive, the the Hoover Dam. Some of you have been to it. If you know anything about China, they have the Three Rivers Dam, which is probably one of the top ten engineering feats uh, as we speak even today in 2017. And then, of course, there was the Aswan Dam on the Nile River uh, in Egypt, And it's that Aswan Dam that I like to talk about because for millennia, the Nile River would overflow its banks. Everybody knew it was coming. The Egyptians knew it was coming. But in the early 60s, they decided that they should put up a permanent dam in the city of Aswan on the Nile River. And that would control all the flooding and, and would create energy and jobs and certain things like that. But going back to the times of the Bible, times of the Bible, that Nile River would have overflown once a year from its banks and flooded, of course, nearby acres. Now, there's a Bible verse you've probably heard in your life, but maybe you didn't understand what it meant. The King James says, Cast your bread upon the water, and after a few days you will find it. And the setting there is the flooding of the Nile River. Because when the Nile River would flood, the rich alluvial soil would be deposited on the banks and the shores of the Nile River for quite a distance either side of the Nile River. So what the Egyptians would do, they would cast their bread, in the King James, or better, seed. They would cast their seeds upon the water that is the flooding Nile, and then after several days, they would see it. They would see little vegetation sprouting and growing. So that verse out of Ecclesiastes eleven one can be illustrated from the overflowing of the Nile River that happened for hundreds and hundreds of years before the great big dam was built. Now, when the water receded, when the water went back to where it belonged initially— That was called, quote, the humiliation of the Nile, close quote. In other words, the pride of the Nile floods. But the humiliation of the Nile is that the river goes back to where it belongs so other people can get on with their life for the next several months. So the idea of humiliation, or another word, of course, would be humility, that is a key word in the life and ministry of our lord and savior jesus christ and we're going to be focusing on that a little bit uh, this morning as we uh, have our final series from my mouth uh, on the uproom discourse because the lord jesus before he died decided to give his longest sermon he was going to leave and the holy spirit was going to come that holy spirit would take the words of the upper room discourse and expand them throughout 21 epistles that we have in the new testament so what i'm going to be sharing for the next six sermons this one and a half a dozen more are basically the key concepts that jesus christ wanted to leave to his apostles and his church before he said goodbye before he left before he departed before he returned to the father it's called by many different expressions in the new testament And I'm doing the very same thing following that biblical example. We'll be going through John 13 through 17. I'll be sharing key theological truths. And I'm going to let uh, Pastor Nathan Williams explain them in the years that are to come. So I'm just following the biblical template and example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, each sermon will have basically two themes two important life-changing theological doctrines. And then again, you'll hear these and you'll remember them, hopefully. But they're words that you've heard your entire life. And today we're going to be focusing on humility and holiness. Humility and holiness. For these are the first two things that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ wanted to share with his apostles and disciples in the upper room literally hours before he died again we call it the upper room discourse John chapters 13 through 17 they weren't all in the upper room chapters 13 and 14 were in the upper room and then they sang a hymn and departed to the Mount of Olives and Jesus crossed by a vineyard and said oh by the way I am the vine and you were the branches and then he went a, a bit farther And he he decided that he should have a, a lengthy season of prayer. That would be John chapter 17. And then, of course, he's arrested in the garden at chapter 18. But basically from John 13 to John 17, we call that the Upper Room Discourse. Now, the last week of our Lord's life is conveniently bracketed by Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. So the last week of our Lord's life is basically Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday. But I want you to know just by the weight, just by the number of chapters in the Bible, one quarter of Matthew is the last week of our Lord's life. One third of Mark is the last week of our Lord's life. One quarter of Luke is the last week of our Lord's life. And one third of John is the last day not week but day of our lord's life and much of that is the urd the upper room discourse and because of the opportunity only to share seven times we're not going to go through deep verse by verse exposition but i do want to surface and illustrate and spotlight some traits of our christian lives that god wants to see Remember, this is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's last shot. It's his longest sermon. He began his ministry by a real long sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. But that was only three chapters long. And other times in his ministry, he'd preach great prophetic messages called the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. He had an, another long discourse where he did eight parables in a row. At Matthew chapter 13, but he saved his longest and his best for last. The Upper Room Discourse, John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And again, they are so powerful. They are so important that it takes 21 epistles to explain what Jesus said in about five chapters. So if you expand the Upper Room Discourse, you get 21 epistles. If you don't have time to read 21 epistles, then just read the Upper Room Discourse. It is that important. A classic illustrations of that would be John chapter 15. Jesus Christ talks about abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him the same. You know what I'm talking about, John chapter 15, abiding in Christ. Well, the 21 epistles turn that into being in Christ or in him or in the Lord. So abide in Christ in the upper room turns into in Christ in the 21 epistles. Our Lord will talk about the Trinity in the upper room discourse and let the epistles explain the Trinity even more. The role of the Holy Spirit is mentioned a handful of times in the upper room discourse, but greatly expanded on in the 21 epistles. Concepts of evangelism are given in the upper room and expanded in the book of Acts and the 21 epistles The concepts of fruit and light and righteousness in the upper room, again explained in the epistles. So, what we're looking at is a very, very sacred part of Scripture. And it'll be my joy and delight to surface just a couple key themes per Sunday before I leave at the end of March. So, let's have our Bibles before us, and you might be looking at the screen when this is done. We're going to be going through the first 17 verses. Of John chapter 13. John chapter 13, the beginning of the Upper Room Discourse, verses 1 through 17. Again, not deep exposition and exegesis, because it's just too many verses, but to surface spiritual truths, spotlighting things that Jesus says these are important. You dare not want to miss these for the rest of your life if you want to bear fruit that abides and glorify God. So the two major things I'm going to focus on would be, number one, Jesus demonstrated humility. The key concept is humility. Then secondly, secondly, Jesus demonstrated holiness. Jesus demonstrated holiness. And then when you have humility and you have holiness, then the third thing I'm going to share this morning would be Jesus described happiness. Jesus described happiness. If you pursue happiness... Apart from humility and holiness, you will fail. You will have nothing more than the energy of the flesh, a wonderful personality, and a sign of the zodiac. And that's all you have going for you unless, unless the words of Christ as taught by the Spirit inculcate this truth into your soul. So basically, I'm going to focus on humility and holiness, because that's what Jesus focuses on. And then the punchline is, if you do these things well, if you do these things correctly, then your life will be permeated and saturated with blessedness, with happiness. We call it makarios, to be saturated with tranquility, knowing that you have a right relationship with jesus christ in your salvation as well as in your sanctification so let's uh, look at the first of these two major portions that is humility and holiness the first five verses the first five verses of john chapter 13 jesus demonstrated humility jesus demonstrated humility and the illustration of that of course would be that he washed the disciples feet he washed the disciples feet even Judas Iscariot, even Judas Iscariot. The Lord dismissed Judas. He was not allowed to partake of the communion service, but he did a good thing to a bad person. He washed the disciples' feet, including Judas. So as we look at the first five verses, Jesus demonstrated humility. And we're going to see, first of all, what he knew and what he did. What he knew and what he did and what he knew was basically three things he knew he was leaving i know what that's all about he knew about loving i try to do that as a pastor and thirdly he knew about the liar the liar who is the devil and satan so he had a very very balanced perspective but here's what jesus knew first of all he knew he was leaving Uh, john chapter 13 verse 1 Now, before the Feast of the Passover, the greatest of the three Hebrew feasts, which is celebrated beginning at Exodus chapter 12 with the Exodus out of Egypt, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would, here it is, depart out of this world to the Father. That's his leaving, at verse number 1 as it ends, departing out of this world to go back to his Father, About a dozen times in the upper room, Jesus said, I'm going to leave you, I'm going to leave you, I'm going to leave you. The apostles didn't believe him. Jesus was basically saying, I'm going to leave you within 24 hours. I mean, when you woke up this morning, you probably didn't think I was going to die. I've known that all along, but you haven't. You are spiritually sharp as a bowling ball. And now we're telling you, I'm leaving That's the first thing out of my mouth as the Upper Room Discourse begins. My public ministry, lasting between three and four years, my public ministry is now ending. I'm going to give you several hours of intensive Bible study through the Upper Room Discourse, and I'm going to plant seeds of spiritual truths that will be able to bud throughout the book of Acts and the writing of the New Testament till about 100 A.D., So the Lord spoke about his leaving. He was saving his best for last. And he wanted them to know, hey, I'm not going to be here forever. In fact, I'll be dead within hours. Then secondly, secondly, our Lord knew about love. The end of verse number one, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, he knew about love. It's mentioned twice at the end of verse number one. We'll talk about love a little bit later on in our series. But the point is simply this. Jesus loved the apostles to the end. And John loves to have played on words and double meanings. So he said, Jesus said, I'm going to love you to the end. That is, I'm going to love you to the uttermost. That is, I'm going to love you by dying on the cross for you. And that's just hours away. You have no idea of that. But it's just hours a day. I'm going to love them to the end. That is to the end of my life, which is just a few hours away. Or I'm going to love you to the end. In other words, there's the uttermost kind of love that God can provide for mankind is how I want to love you. And again, both are true. He's going to love these apostles as long as he has breath in his body. But he's also going to love them to the end. That is in a qualitative way that only deity can love a saved sinner. You'll get a little bit of this uh, love at Colossians, pardon me, Ephesians chapter three, verses eighteen and nineteen, which talks about the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses all human understanding. Now, we normally work in in three dimensions, but God's love is in breadth, in length, in height and depth, and that is at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. In a Trinitarian way, we have the God of love, we have Jesus loving, and the Holy Spirit has the fruit of love. You are loved by an eternal trinity. So Jesus knew about leaving and departing and going to the Father. He knew about love. He's going to love them as long as he lives, but he's going to love them in an unbelievable way. And then thirdly and lastly, he knew about the liar. Verse number two, during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. And again, at verse number two, Jesus Christ was aware of his enemy, Satan and the devil, or better, satan who is the devil the word satan occurs in the old testament and the new testament the word devil is only a new testament word you don't have the devil in the old testament but you do have satan in both covenants but one of the key verses that our lord shared about satan is john eight forty four. you of your father the devil then he says secondly he was a murderer from the beginning and he ends that verse by saying he is a liar in fact he's the father of lies So the father is the devil, he's a murderer, just ask Adam and Eve, and he's a liar from the beginning as the father of lies. And that's just in one verse. There's a lot of other things about Satan that could be mentioned. Again, Paul in 2 Corinthians teaches us more about Satan than in any other of his 13 epistles. And in 2 Corinthians, that is the book in which Paul is suffering the most. And he was very, very sensitive to the spirit world at that time. But the point is simply this. Jesus knew about his leaving, about his loving, and he knew about a liar who is called Satan. But he not only knew things, but he did certain things. So let's see not only what Jesus knew, but also what Jesus did. And that's verses 4 and 5. And what he did shocked those 12 in the upper room. And what he did at verses 4 and 5 was he washed the disciples' feet. He washed the disciples' feet. And this was 100% unheard of in the culture of the Jewish people as well as in the Greco-Roman world. Um, What did Jesus do? Well, at verse 4, he got up, and at verse 5, he bent down. He got up, and he bent down at verse number 4. Jesus got up from supper and laid aside his garments and, taking a towel, he girded himself. Verse 5 says, Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. But before we get to verse number 4, you have to understand what's going on. We're talking about the Passover Seder, the Passover Seder, this is that meal that commemorates Passover when Jerusalem's population was close to a million people. A million people in Jerusalem want to partake of this Seder, this Passover meal. But Jesus, being sovereign, had already prepared it. He said that I've contacted a person who had a large upper room that was furnished. It's large. because There's going to be 13 of us. It's furnished with food and beverage and even swords, swords. And what you want to do is you're going to go into Jerusalem and find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Just follow him and he'll lead you to a large upper room that was furnished. Well, that doesn't really sound very impressive to us. But in the times of the Bible, men, that is males, never carried water. They never did that. That was woman's work. So if there's a man carrying water, you follow that guy. He's easy to spot like a a sore thumb. And he'll lead you to a large upper room that was furnished. And as you would take the steps to that large upper room, the very first thing you would see would be a basin of water and towels because you were to wash your feet or have the slave of the house wash your feet before you would have dinner, before you would have supper, Just as we frequently wash our hands before a meal, in the times of the Bible, you wash your feet before a meal. I mean, that was as common as brushing teeth and washing your hands and just everybody did it until this evening when the apostles were actually fighting and debating as to which one would be the greatest. Can you imagine that? the apostles were debating among themselves which were to be the greatest. In the kingdom of God, which apostle would be on either side of the Lord and Savior in the millennial kingdom? And for that reason, this immense pride, nobody of the twelve, the apostles, would dare wash the other disciples' feet because that's beneath my dignity Hey, I might end up on either the right or the left side of the throne of Jesus in the Millennial Kingdom. And people like that don't wash other people's feet. So they started the Passover Seder, the most sacred of the Jewish family meals, with unwashed feet. And our Lord said, time out, time out. We're not progressing any further until we settle this main, main issue because none of you people have humility. Not one of you, John included, the teacher's pet, not one of you have enough humility to wash the other's feet. But I do, and more importantly, I will. So with that little background at verse number four, Jesus got up from the, the supper and he laid aside his garments <clears throat> And taking a towel, he girded himself. Now, whether he took off his outer cloak or if he went down to his skivvies, we don't know the the Greek will allow either. But the point is simply this. Our Lord said, I will be the servant. I will be the slave because you prideful people, my disciples, in whom I poured the past three or four years of my life into, you still don't get it. You still don't get it. After all these years in rabbinical law, a wife had to wash the feet of her husband and the children had to wash the feet of their father. But that's rabbinical theology. Here, Jesus says, I'm going to do what slaves do. I'm going to do what even children do. I'm going to do something out of humility that your pride would not allow you to do. At verse number 5, he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He didn't have a washcloth or a hand towel or a bath towel. He had something like a beach towel. It was large enough to cover his body and also had a big piece of leftover where he would wash the disciples' feet. Now, remember, washing feet was not done at a table like you would see in Leonardo da Vinci's famous The Last Supper, where there's 13 people all on the same side of the table. That's unusual. So our Lord didn't crawl under that table and bang his head as he went from apostle to apostle. No, the table was called a triclinium, only about 18 inches above the ground. You would rest on your forearm and with your free hand, you would dip into the common pot and get a sop. Remember, Jesus gave the sop to Judas. All of your heads would be together like a hub, and your bodies would radiate almost like spokes from a hub. So it was a mega easy, mega easy for Jesus to wash the disciples' feet because they were just lying out there at the, at the circumference of this semicircle where the apostles were eating at the triquinium at the at the table at which they had the last supper now as he went around john and judas um, were close together peter probably being the oldest felt ashamed and went to the very very end of the table so in a second we're going to see that our lord's going to wash peter's feet but peter was probably last in line trying to realize i'm the oldest i should have known better i should have set the example but it's so much fun having prestige. It's so much fun being a power broker. And I just didn't want to. I should have, but I, I, I just... So we'll see that in a second. Now, this idea to uh, lay aside and to take up, these are the two Greek words used out of Jesus' mouth in John chapter 10 when he lays down his life and takes it up again. So actually, he's talking about his cross work, his atonement by way of the verbs used here at verse number four. But that's a whole other story, but we're not going to get into it. So what Jesus did, he got up and he bent down and he demonstrated unbelievable humility in the midst of such prideful, such haughty. Can I quote the King James of Isaiah 65, 5? Holier than thou. That's the spirit that the apostles had. And our Lord said, "I will not take it. Not only is it a breach of Seder protocol, but you need to be taught a lesson on humility. On humility. Interesting. The years I pastored the Chinese Bible Church, they would not let me set up a folding chair or move a folding table. At this church, that's all I do. But at the Chinese Bible Church, they would not. Mac soy, mac soy." Pastor, pastor, you embarrass us. You humiliate us as pastor carrying chairs and tables. We don't do it. Don't do it. You rebuke us. And that is the exact illustration of what's happening in the upper room. Where is humility? Where is servanthood? It is not to be found amongst the human rank, but it is to be found in the rank of the divine, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus demonstrated humility. Now, secondly, secondly, Jesus demanded holiness. Jesus demanded holiness. There's some dirty feet and they need to be washed. And if you're not going to wash them, I will. So humility is followed by holiness. Holiness. Jesus demonstrated humility. Jesus demanded, demanded holiness. And we have three exchanges, three exchanges between Peter and Jesus. And we'll look at all three of these uh, again as they appear in the Bible sequentially. Again, the Lord has washed 11 disciples' feet, including Judas. And now he comes to the leader of the pack. Simon Peter, Simon Peter the Apostle, and the first exchange at verses 6 and 7, the first exchange at verses 6 and 7, Peter speaks to Jesus at verse number 6 and says this. So Jesus came to Simon Peter. When you had the word Simon there, you know something bad's going to happen. You just know it. When my mom said Gregory Jack Hands, the boom is being lowered. I'm not being put on a an altar for praise, I'm going to be bludgeoned. So Jesus came to Simon Peter, verse number 6. Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Or he could have said it, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And it's kind of, we really don't know the, the, the atmosphere of what's going on. Uh, Peter could have saw, said, Lord, did you wash my feet? I, I feel so unworthy. I'm so ashamed. I'm so embarrassed. I I should have known better. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Or he could have said, uh, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I know what's going on. This isn't right. Is anybody going to protest? The other 11 kept their mouth shut. I'm going to say what's on my mind because I'm Simon Peter. And Lord, are you actually going to wash my feet? Because Peter did have a haughty spirit. But he also realized in a few verses, like, man, I got to get on page and on task with Jesus. And we'll see that in a few minutes. So at verse number seven, Jesus responds to Peter's question. Verse seven, Jesus answered and said to Simon Peter, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand a little later. That is in the hereafter. And Jesus with confidence and with kindness, said, Peter, you really don't understand what I'm doing. Again, you're you're not very spiritually inept at this particular junction in your life. I know back at Matthew chapter sixteen you wanted to keep me from the cross. And I know in the future, although you don't know this, you're going to deny me three times. So I know Peter these are not your best hours, but but you do not realize what's going on now, but you will understand hereafter When the Holy Spirit comes, you'll learn what the upper room is all about. And Peter, Jesus said under his breath, when you write your two epistles, you're going to make frequent reference to the upper room because this verse will become true. You will know what's going on, but it's hereafter. It's it's down the road after the Holy Spirit comes. So Peter wants to continue the dialogue. Exchange number two, verse number eight. Peter said to Jesus, verse 8, Peter said to him in the Greek text, you absolutely shall never wash my feet. You absolutely shall never wash my feet. Again, is this Peter's embarrassment or is this Peter's stubbornness? You are not washing my feet. The verse continues with Jesus' response to Peter. Jesus answered Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So this is very serious. Peter, if you do not let me wash your feet, you will have no part with me. That, my friend, is very, very serious. There is union and there is communion. And Jesus says, Peter, you need both. You need union with me for forgiveness. You need communion with me for cleansing. And if you don't let me wash your feet... You have absolutely no part with me. Yikes. Exchange number three, verse nine. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. In other words, if there's flesh that's visible, I want it to be washed. All the other 11, they're content with having their feet washed. But I want my hands washed. I want my head washed. If there's flesh exposed, wash it. Because I now understand I really need forgiveness and I really need fellowship and communion. And if that's symbolized by washing feet, then I'm in lock, stock, barrel, hook, line, sinker, body, soul, spirit. Wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head. I want to be identified with you as much as humanly possible. So, Eureka! The light went on. Peter realized there was sin in his life that had to be dealt with through the compassionate and loving, good, great, and chief shepherd who is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse number 10, Jesus responds to Peter's wonderful declaration of verse number 9 and says at verse 10, He who has bathed, uh, and that would be at a public bathhouse or your private home dwelling, a full-body bathing only um needs to wash his feet but is completely clean and you are clean but not all of you in other words you my disciples you have been cleaned through my atonement which will be just an hour or several hours away and later on as you grow in grace you're going to realize that the closer you come to a holy god the more sin is revealed in your life and sin affects fellowship so so you'll want to deal with that sin in your life and And you are clean in the sense that I have saved you. And you have been bathed in the blood of the lamb, so to speak, or will be. But not all of you, because there is Judas still at the table. Verse number 11 says much the same. For Jesus knew, at verse number 11, the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Judas Iscariot. uh, Judas, by the way, is the Hebrew word for praise. I'd like to be the traitor and your name means praise, but that's exactly what happened. Uh, Judas, uh, the man from Iscariot, ish is the Hebrew word for man. So his name was Judas, the man from this particular city. And um, you're betraying me, the most common term that our Lord has for Judas. He is the betrayer. His name means praise, but he does just the opposite. And by the way, Judas is mentioned about a half a dozen times in the Upper Room Discourse. And trust me, although Hollywood might put him in heaven, Judas is in hell. That's easy to prove, very, very easy to prove. So, as we wrap up in the last paragraph, Jesus demonstrated humility. Jesus demanded holiness. Now, thirdly and lastly, Jesus described happiness. Jesus described happiness. And from verse number 12 down to verse number 17, uh, Jesus, at verses 12, 13, and 14, uh, basically is going to clarify a doctrine, and it's an important one as we live our daily lives. But let me just read um, verse 12 through the first half of verse 14. Verse 12, so when Jesus had washed their feet and has taken his garments and reclined at table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've just done to you? And he does not wait for an answer because he knows that they're not that sharp. So at verse number 13, he says, You call me teacher, and you call me Lord, and you are right, for so I am, if I then am the Lord and the teacher. And that's how the Greek text reads. You call me teacher and Lord. Jesus says, I want to reverse that. I want you to know that I am the Lord and I am the teacher. I am the Lord. I am first in your life and I am always that way. And secondly, I'm a teacher because I don't teach you every hour of the day, although I am the Lord of your life every hour of the day. So I am a teacher and I am a Lord, but I prefer my word order better. I want you to understand the Lordship of Christ and my teaching ministry. And in context, the teaching ministry involves humility and holiness. I mean, that's the context of Jesus being a teacher. And Jesus said, it's very, very important to me. If you understand the Lordship of Christ, you had better be a humble and holy born-again believer throughout your life. Other people can have bells and whistles, and they can have neon signs and fluorescent colors. But you need to be humble. You need to be humble. And secondly, secondly, you need to be holy. There is to be no dirt on your feet having walked from point A to point B in a sin-cursed world. Verse 15, verse 15 to continue. Because, Jesus said, I gave you an example that is the foot washing, so that you also should do as I have done. That is a beautiful, beautiful correlative. As I have done it to you, so you do it to others. I demonstrated humility, and I was concerned about your holiness. Will you demonstrate humility, and will you make other people holy in your ministry? That's very, very important. You should do as I have done. Jesus said, in my ministry, I have comforted people. I have taught people. I have counseled people. I want you to do the same. And our Lord Jesus did so many things. I'm talking about doing things with hands and feet and with mouth and lips. And he wants us to have that wonderful, wonderful joy of being on the team with him. He is the head. We are the body. And then the punchline at verse number 17, if you know these things about humility and holiness and service. If you know them, you are blessed if you do them. Verse 17, if you know these things, humility, holiness, service, you are blessed if you do them. You are blessed if you do them. There's an old saying, after all is said and done, there's always more things said than are ever done. That should not be the motto of the Woodhaven Bible Church. Do not put that weight upon the neck of your next pastor. We're all talk, no action. That indeed should not be the case. Happy are you, blessed are you, saturated with tranquility are you. If you do the things that I have done, if you understand humility and holiness, you will be happy. That, my friend, is Very, very true. Now to conclude with a couple applications out of humility and out of holiness, and we'll try to get to these as quickly as possible. First of all, with humility, the question is simply asked, are you a humble person? Are you a humble person? We're not asking for a raising of hands, but in the quietness of your heart. But I want you to know that if you are then you are just like Jesus Christ, who was unbelievably humble. He washed the dirty feet of his apostles, and one of them would betray him. Um, A lot of you know, Come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A great evangelism altar call verse. The very next verse says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Matthew 11, 29. I beseech you, based on the meekness of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 1. You see, Jesus Christ was humble. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. In fact, in that Kenosis passage in Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself to become a man, he humbled himself to become a slave. And he humbled himself to die upon a cross. He was not just humble, he was uber humble. He was mega humble. And that is the example that we are to have. Now, to put the shoe on the other foot, if you are not a humble person, if you are not a humble person, then like the Nile River, you better get back to where you belong. You better get back to where you belong you are you are overstepping your boundaries you are out of bounds you are out of control because there's a way that seems right unto man but the end of that way is the way of death your way is wrong god's way is right follow the example of humility that the incarnate christ presented in The four gospel accounts. And the easiest way to check if you are humble is, are you doing anything for somebody else? I have left you an example that you should do as I have done. Does that sink in? Does that register? The reason things are not done in John 13 is because people are not humble and they are not loving. It's as simple as that. Humble people and loving people serve. Prideful people don't serve. Unloving people don't serve. It's just this simple biblical math. So serving, helping, and blessing, very, very important in the role of humility. But then secondly and lastly, an application dealing with holiness. An application dealing with holiness. We heard the expression our whole lives, cleanliness is next to godliness. That's not in the book of Proverbs. In fact, it's not in the Bible, but it is a good spiritual truth. So I ask you, how clean are your feet right now at 1144? How clean are your feet? Some of you might say, my feet are filthy and and so is my heart. I need a complete washing In fact, is there such thing as a a washing of regeneration? Because if there was a washing of regeneration, that's what I need. That's what I want. And I would say, boy, that's really great because you just quoted Titus chapter 3, verse 5. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us by the washing of water of regeneration by the word of God. But you can look at your feet and say, I'm born again. I'm saved. I know that for sure. But My feet look, at a minimum, dusty, at a maximum, muddy, and I need my feet cleaned. I need my feet cleaned. And it just so happens, in John chapter 13, Jesus Christ specializes in cleansing sin. He forgives it, and he cleanses it, but does it register that your feet are even dirty? The old joke about the corpulent man who went to the airport and got a shoe shine. And he said, I'm so corpulent after my shoe shine, I have to take the guy's word for it. Because he can't see his own feet. Can't see his own feet. He has to take the guy's word for it. We cannot go through life spiritually without looking at our feet. Because holiness is important. It is very important. In fact, there is humility. And there's holiness, and these are the first two bullets out of the Lord's gun in the Upper Room Discourse. So, verses like this. I love 2 Corinthians 7, one. Therefore, having these biblical promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh and the filthiness of the spirit as we perfect holiness in the very sight of God. And that, that is a powerful, powerful verse at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, having these biblical promises, this is in the word of God. It's in John chapter 13. It's in the upper room discourse that we would cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh, sensuality, porn, eye-gate filth, gluttony, booze, gossip, the works of the flesh. But the verse says, and also cleanse us from the filthiness of the spirit. Pride, anger, revenge, greed, holier than thou. We need to cleanse ourselves as we perfect and mature holiness before the very sight of God. That's not legalism, that's godliness. So our Lord said, if you demonstrate humility and you demonstrate holiness, my friend, you'll be a happy soul. You will be a happy soul because what God has done in your life is so important to you that you want to honor him indeed with your life. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Upper Room Discourse. We thank you that Jesus demonstrated humility. He demanded holiness, but he also described happiness. Might we always know that the way of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. And might that indeed be the case as we make our way through the Upper Room Discourse, as we return thanks in the precious name of Christ. Amen.